Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Hey there, and welcome back to Looking Outside. In our quest to be smarter, more analytical, strategic, scrupulous, credible, we deal with facts and figures a lot. But what does it mean to look both more closely and further back from the numbers? Well, today I am so excited to have an expert discuss this with us and a very big welcome to the show to my fellow Aussie, Bernard Salt. Hi, Joe. Pleased to be here. So, so honored to have you on the show. And we, we can edit this out or not, um, but I've heard a few people call you Bernard. Is it Bernard or <laughs> Bernard? Well, um, depends whether you are broadcasting this to an American audience. Uh, the right. Americans do not know of the pronunciation Bernard. Huh. They pronounce Bernard as Bernard. Yes. And I think the same <laughs> applies to Gerard as well, ah. whereas the British and Irish pronunciation is Bernard. So Bernard. Um, whenever I'm in the US and introduce myself, I say, hi, my name is Bernard. And they say, <laughs> David? Da- how do you get David from Bernard? <laughs> but but in job. their world, it's either Bernie or Bernard. There's nothing in between. <laughs> Bernie. If you're feeling like really casual. <laughs> really casual. My, my family as a young kid used to call me Bernie oh, and some go. school friends and so forth. Look, I, you know, I'm just not particularly <laughs> fussed by it all, really. Oh, well, uh, Bernard, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I am Bernard Salt. I um, run what is known as the Demographics Group. I founded that five years ago. Prior to that, for 20 years, I worked as a partner with KPMG Australia founded KPMG Demographics, have really built a business profile and a media profile around demographics. And it's all leveraged off my academic skill base, I suppose. I am a failed history and geography school teacher by training. (laughs) So when I grew up in a country town, I thought I wanted to be, you know, the best thing I could imagine would be to be a school teacher. So I trained to be a history and geography school teacher then realised that's probably not for me, did a master's degree and just loved the idea of big picture demographics and geographics, sort of the settlement and the evolution of the Australian people and continent and and, and beyond as well, and then leverage that into the media and also into the business community. And I found that business at the uppermost level, CEOs, boards really like this long-term perspective because business and boards are used to dealing with MBAs who talk about this quarter's results and next quarter's results and whatever. Uh, whereas I come along and I talk about trends over 100 years into the past and you know 50 years into the future and what might be driving that. And I think that if you are steering a major corporation, then you kind of need to know Am I on the right track? Basically, if a business is in the right space at the right time, offering the right product, everything else is just finessing, it's just operational. But are you in the right business at the right time, offering the right product? And that's where my skill set in um, bigger picture demographics comes to the fore, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say that you've made demographics cool. Maybe, maybe it was cool <laughs> before, but I think you've really made it cool. And I feel like it's in part because you you have this very 
comedic almost or very personable, very well-branded kind of perspective that you bring in terms of demographics. So, you know, you bring a little bit of like humour to maybe something that's a little bit dry. I learned very early in presenting. I've been Mm. presenting professionally for 20 years and then probably 10 years prior to that as a consultant. And I learned very early on in presenting to boards and business people, very, very senior, and they can be very intimidating. You know, you see people in the room and their household names, you've seen their name in the business papers and whatever, and it can be very, very intimidating for a young consultant. And I learned very early on, establish the facts, put your case, and be bold enough to make a wry comment or to have some fun with the audience. Mm. They love it because they're sitting there all day in a board meeting and along comes someone who actually has a bit of fun. Now, you can't be comedic up front, but you need to be, you need to have the self-confidence to take control of the situation. And, you know, some as an example, I will deliver a presentation and, you know, I'll talk about uh, acronyms, like baby, uh, the demographers are always talking about acronyms, you know, like yuppies and dinks. They're always inventing new ones. And so I talk about some of the acronyms that I've invented, like pumpkins, P-U-M-C-I-N-S, professional urban middle class in nice suburbs, and (laughs) the pumpkin generation. And then I talked about the goat's cheese curtain. So the inner city of Australian cities is very hipster-like, and then you get into the burbs. And the line between the inner city and the burbs is the goat's cheese curtain. And, And then another one I invented for the pandemic you know, and you could see all these people streaming out of the capital cities, particularly Melbourne. And I invented the term, the VESPA effect, uh, V-E-S-P-A, virus escapees seeking provincial Australia. I think that would also work in America, virus escapees seeking provincial America. It would be something like uh, seeking main town, main street America or something like that, I imagine. Yeah. But that's the point, you know, have some fun. Mm-hmm. With the with the audience after you've established some credibility, you know you've, you're bringing something to the table, and then demonstrate your command of that space by having some fun, and people love it. They, yeah. they remember it years later. They'll say, "Oh, mm-hmm. you can't just speak to us. Can't remember what you spoke on, but you talked about pumpkins and vespers and whatever else it was." <laughs> Yes, and I, um, we were talking about this before we started recording, but I've had the pleasure of seeing you in person present and the audience just loved it. And we had so many people in the office the day afterwards saying, oh, that was my favourite presentation. This was at Mars. <laughs> because, you know, it, it just injected so much energy into what you were talking about. And it kind of humanises what you're saying as well, right? Because you're not just up there going, the trajectory of these yeah. statistics is X. You're really kind of, you know, bringing life into it. Well, very much so. Not just humour, but also energy. You should never stand behind a lectern. Stand out in front of people, look people straight in the eye, put your hands out and say what you think. Be authentic. Say, look, I think it's going to hit like this. But if it doesn't, you know, that's it's, it's but here here is my assessment of the facts. You might have a different view. You're just very honest with the audience and they really, really respond. Lots of energy, lots of certainly data. As, establish your credibility and just present and speak as you would normally to um, to people, to the audience. That's the yeah. that's the secret, I suppose. 
So you have, like you mentioned before, spoken to or presented to, you know, probably some very high caliber senior people. So do you often think back to, you know, what you said at the start that you're, you're, uh, um, you know, from a country, small country town <laughs> in Australia and yeah. that you're now presenting to the big wigs? Yes. It's, um, you know, occasionally it does occur to me, you know, I went to a country high school, came from a working class family, all that sort of thing. And in some respects, I think what this shows is that in Australia, and no doubt in America as well, perhaps even more so in America, that it, these are places of opportunity. If you work hard, if you're honest and authentic and communicate well, then the sky's the limit, really. And, you know, I'm, so, I'm very grateful for that opportunity in Australia. You do need the right mindset, the mindset of, uh, you know, along the way, it's not easy. I mean, when you're starting out, there's people who will not be happy that you are on stage or mm. <laughs> presenting or whatever. So you do need to have a very, very good self-confidence to withstand people who might say something designed to, you know, not support you. So generally, 90, 95% of people have been very supportive and helpful to me in, in, in my career. Do you mean that potentially some people from like who had a similar trajectory to you but have seen your success are a bit jealous? Is that what you mean? There is that sense of, um, well, you know, he's not, you know, he's, you know, a jumped up school teacher or something like that. I mm. mean, there's all sorts mm. of, there's all sorts of ways in which, and look, anyone in corporate life will, will find it. I found looking back up to the age of about 35, everyone loves you. You know, you're young, you're bright, you know, if you've got insight, you've got talent, all that sort of thing. And no one worries too much up to about 35. After 35, 35 to 45, the pyramid starts to narrow at the top and people come out of the woodwork and there's not the positions, you know, in like a partnership or something like that. And so you're in competition. I mean, it's human nature, I suppose. And so someone has to survive. You know, 35 to 45 is really quite cutthroat in business. And you need to be very sure of what you want out of that stage in the life cycle. You need to work very hard, be very consistent and not be dissuaded by or easily upset from your trajectory. So, you know, someone saying something off to the side, like, you know, for example, you know, what, what does demographics matter anyway or something like that? You know, and if you take that to heart, you think you lose self-confidence in front of audiences and you can't do that. So be very, very, very sure of where you want to go by the age of 35 because it kind of gets a bit more competitive after that. Very interestingly, once you get through that 35 to 45 sort of battle, then you get to a sort of a clearing in the jungle. And, uh, you know, it's actually it's very pleasant thereafter. It's a bit like cutting through a jungle, you've got a machete and you're trying to hack through and <laughs> get your way through. It, it's, it is quite quite a test, yeah. I think, but um, getting through to the other side is very rewarding. Yeah, of course. It's really interesting that you say that too, because I've, I, like very recently, I've had people from my very first job in Australia, like my first corporate role reach out to me to say, hey, like I can see you're in the US and you're doing all these amazing <laughs> things which is incredible that they like even still remember me. But I 
think that the way that I interpret that is I internalize it and I go, oh my gosh, like, who am I? Going back to your bit around confidence, right? I, I kind of think like, who am I to be doing all of this? And like, do they do they think I'm credible enough? And am I able to, you know, almost like field through that, you know, that, that wilderness that you're talking about it takes a lot of resilience. It does take resilience and self-confidence mm. and Never be psych- psyched out. I don't know if we use the term psyched out anymore, but don't be psyched out by people who sow seeds of doubt. You can do anything and just be honest, be authentic, do your best, do your research, know your stuff, have a plan, mm-hmm. and um, it, will, it will go better than you imagine. But anyone in business has to, at some stage, stand up in front of other people and the hardest group to present to are your peers, and especially from your late 30s, early 40s, because everyone mm. is looking at you thinking, I want to get your position, or there's one position above us all, and I want to get there and not you. So you just you need to learn those skills of being able to communicate well and in an engaging way with an audience. Uh, you know, I started my business career as a consultant. You know, you'd write a report and you'd send it off to the client. By the late 1990s, it was evident that you'd write the report, then the client says, come into my office, and then you tell me what's in the report. They don't want to read it. And then they go through a process of cross-examining you. It's it's a cross-examination. And it might be three or four of them, quite senior people. And if you can withstand that and engage that and control that and be warm and engaging and authentic and knowledgeable mm. and cite figures and whatever... You will find that does more for your career in five minutes than in five years. I've seen it happen. Mm. That people gain immediate confidence in you. They can see that you can control the moment, that you can put forward an argument under pressure, that you don't wilt, that you can maintain a pleasant demeanour. And it's not as hard as it sounds learn it, and it can be your secret skill in a corporate sense. Mm, That's really powerful. And also like know your stuff, going back to what you said before, right? Like if you you go into any presentation or any conversation where someone's questioning what you've generated, then if you know your stuff, like you know the content inside and out, you feel like you can keep calm and you can weather whatever questions come your way. Very much. You do need to know your material, but you also need to know a narrative. In consultant world, you'll often see this. Consultants have a PowerPoint presentation and they'll put a slide up and it'll be jam-packed with figures and data and this and that. It's just it's just like a you know, it's a looks like a pizza plate. It's just filled with stuff. And that's mm-hmm. because that consultant doesn't really know what's important. Mm-hmm. It takes editorial courage to have a blank page with three or four bullets, and that's it. What you're saying to the client there is, I know what's important. Here is the key points to my argument and a couple of data points and whatever, and I'm going to walk you through this. And then that that is a better style than throwing everything on the screen in front of the CEO and hoping that the CEO picks something up and then you can pick up a thread that aligns with his or her thinking. No, that's, that's not the way you do it. You go in there with an idea, with a view, with an opinion, with a narrative that you are going to pursue to the CEO. It requires courage in the moment, it requires real courage. 
Yes, and the narrative piece I think is really important because, you know, particularly in business, we're doing so many training sessions around storytelling and the power of storytelling. So building a narrative around, you know, ideally, like what are you trying to actually uncover or what question are you trying to answer? And then building the numbers and the data and the facts around that. So like, how do you, well, actually I should say, do you start with that? Do you start with when you're looking at something, like what is the story that I want to tell? Or do you start with the data and let it come? I start with the data. The data tells you the story. The data does not lie. The numbers and again, this comes back to business and my observation of business. Um, if you are speaking to a CEO or a board, do not put a view that effect- that effectively says, I reckon this, I think that. <laughs> here is mm-hmm. information. Here are some data points. And as a consequence, I think this. You do need to put data points. And a data point can be a metric, like a number, you know, like, I don't know, dollars or whatever it is. But it can also be evidence like citing examples. Our competitors did this and and put metrics around it. In February last year, our competitor did this at that site involving this commitment. And a year later, it's moved on to that. This goes to my argument that we could develop something similar is the point. So you're citing an example, a real life example that the CEO will know. And then you you link it across into a data set that's coming out of your organisation or that's coming out about how the market is changing. So um, that's uh, how you do it. I have been writing columns in newspapers for 20 years or so. If there's a new piece of data coming out, like from the census or, you know, I've just seen something somewhere, I think, oh, that's very interesting. I'll get the data. Then I'll do 700 words and publish it in the paper. That does two things. It gets in my head the logic of the argument. You assemble the key data and package it in either a chart or graph or a table or something like that. And you're actually trialling that logic piece in the open market. And then via social media or LinkedIn, if your logic is illogical, you will soon find that very quickly (laughs) because people say, you know, you idiot, you shouldn't have done this. Or people say... That is a terrific idea. I've seen that happening in such and such. And they actually give you the examples. And you can then build out and flesh out your narrative because by collaboration, by publishing, even on LinkedIn, then you get more examples. So actually, this this does sound right. This is a logical way to uh, to progress. But the the advantage also of writing it out, you know, six, seven hundred words, that does not mean that when you get in front of the CEO, you try and memorise those six or 700 mm-hmm. words. That just means that you get it principally in your head and you might have in front of you, you know, three or four bullets on a piece of paper. Yes, I need to say about this, then I need to say about that, and then I need to conclude with this. And don't forget to use that example. And that is that is incredibly powerful. And, you know, if you think of the world of the CEO, you know, sitting there and they're getting presentations left, right and centre, and most people are stumbling around, they've got data everywhere, they don't really quite know what they're doing, they're just on the back foot all the time. And you come in there with a data story and an opinion and examples that you have thought through and written down in, prior to going in there, that um, puts you at a, a greater advantage. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the CEO is also probably getting lots of opinions thrown his or her way, right? Like people are trying to get more budget or get more resourcing or invest in this area or that area. So does the data and the facts allow them to focus in on something that's a little bit more credible versus maybe something that's tied to a personal opinion? Yeah. I mean, if you think of it from the CEO's point of view, He's got, you know, five direct reports, all of them screaming or saying or being very forceful because they all think they should be the CEO, all (laughs) saying, all saying, I need more budget. I mean, I can do this if you give me more budget. I'm being held back by blah, 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 Mm -hmm. uh, all of that. You come in as a lowly consultant or wherever it is in the organisation and say, Mr or Ms, CEO, I think we need to be doing this in this direction because... Here is data from three sources that actually shows this trend compared to what we've been doing. And I think we need to be moving in that direction. And here's how we could do it. Now, not only does that give him insight, but it also gives him or her a defence to argue to other people. You're presenting the CEO with the evidence that he or she needs to make a choice and not... I don't know, not piss off any of the, you know, direct reports, basically. It's, it's just much, it's very political at that level as well. I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't be adversarial. Yeah. You can't, you've got to, you've got to mm-hmm. mind people's feelings. And if it's evident in the data, well, I'm sorry, look, I'd love to help, you know, maybe next year. Mm. So have you ever presented data points or facts, even when you're combining multiple facts to tell that narrative and the data has been distrusted? Someone questions the data. Oh, uh, oh, yes. You know, quite often people will say, and I always say to my people, my group, before you even put the data down, where did it come from? When was it published? Tell me the concept behind those figures. And that means, do you understand the data that is being put forward? Because if the CEO says, where'd that figure come from? And you say, oh, uh, uh, um, World Bank. World Bank <laughs> when? When was it published? Who published it? Mm. What does that figure actually mean? What did it look like five years ago? Is there a projection of a new figure in a year's time? When will it be updated? In other words, a CEO, as soon as they see a number that is quite important, they'll start circling it like a shark. <laughs> yes. Literally like a shark. And mm. unless you can defend it, you'll end up being taken out by that shark. I've seen CEOs say that to people. What does that figure actually mean? And they stumble and they don't really know. They've gone in unprepared. They don't go into a CEO unprepared. So I have a question on that that piece around context. And, you know, you mentioned that you're you're really passionate about history and you can see that through your presentations as well, that you really kind of contextualise what we're seeing and what we're likely to see with where it's come from and that like 100 years of data that you mentioned before. So how important is history History. when we're looking at history and that kind of the context? Well, I think it's absolutely critical. If, If you're a business, then you want to know, is there going to be more demand for what I have to offer in five years or 10 years? And you can have all sorts of people theorise about, you know, what might be the case in five years' time or 10 years' time, but it's just theories. But if you can say, well, if you go back to the 1950s, then we were doing this. You know, we're living in separate houses and separate blocks of land. 
And then we then we moved into sea change and tree change and lifestyle. Then we moved into the inner city, you know, apartment or whatever. So we're always pursuing lifestyle. You go back in time and build a narrative and then say, well, we're, we're here on the curve. And that means that over the next five or 10 years, there will be a new iteration of our pursuit of lifestyle. And that might be to um, live in a sea change or tree change community and to work from home. And mm. in Australia, that might be, you know, go to the Gold Coast, go to the Sunshine Coast and work from home. In America, it might be, um, you might find more people basing themselves in Florida and zooming in. You know, why wouldn't you? The only reason why you would live in New York or Chicago, I'm sure there's terrific places to live, of course, <laughs> but but you might think, you know what, I really, I, I've just had it with the cold, I want to live in a warm climate, but I haven't been mm-hmm. able to do it because of that. And you can actually see that, well, that that logically makes sense. Over time, we have continually, as a people, continually pursued quality of life and lifestyle. And we're tied to cold cities because of the need to commute. If you don't need to commute, then that we can go back to pursuing lifestyle. So you're actually building an argument that reaches back in time and they can sort of think, oh, actually kind of makes sense. That to me is a is a stronger argument than just saying, well, I reckon we're going to do this, which a lot of tech people do. You know, they'll they'll get carried right. away with all the techie stuff, which mm-hmm. you know is great, but mm-hmm. it needs to be anchored into the will of the Australian people or the will of the American people. What fundamentally drives Americans? What fundamentally drives Australians? They're the bigger questions that I'd be asking. Yeah, yeah. and what's really fascinating for me about demographics and the, the entire field is that, like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's sort of anchored in sociology. So it's really anchored in understanding human beings and human behaviour, as opposed to, like, I think maybe what some people would think of it as, like, statistics, just yeah. looking at the numbers themselves, but it's really much more about understanding people. Very much so. One of my favourite lines, I don't know whether I used it in my presentation when you were in the room, one of my favourite lines is, here is a map of Australia. I think the Australian people are talking to us through this chart. And I genuinely believe that. These are not numbers. This is the Australian people over the course of generations speaking to us about their preferences. If you present a table of figures to a CEO or a board, and I have seen this done, you know, you can have like a a whole page of numbers and a CEO or a board, especially a CFO, they're really good with with numbers. They'll go through and they'll say Mm -hmm. that figure and they'll point to a figure on the 10th row on the fifth column. (laughs) I've seen this happen. This guy Mm -hmm. said that figure is inconsistent with a figure three pages earlier. (laughs) You know, they're they're ability to do that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's being able to say, not just what's on the page, but are these page, are these figures rising? Are they falling? Are they veering in a particular direction? It's a bit like you know, figures are bodies in space. Do you just look at its coordinates or do you see that it's rising, it's falling, it's twisting, it's turning, it's evolving, it's coming closer, it's moving away? That's what I mean about uh, context. And that's the story of numbers. You know, the, the bald numbers, the bare numbers, are actually boring. It's the context of those numbers and how that shifting makes it fascinating, engaging, compelling, in fact. Mm, 
compelling. Yes, I like that. And I've definitely been in that situation where I've had a finance person pick out like line 10, item mm-hmm. two. I mean, like, that doesn't oh. match what you presented before. Well, you know, as soon as, as soon as a CFO or a CEO or someone who doesn't really like you, <laughs> as soon as they see something that's inconsistent and then they'll go through and say, oh, that figure doesn't add up and you've spelt this incorrectly and you haven't used the apostrophe right, then they go to town. <laughs> they absolutely yeah, go yeah. to town. So you just don't want to give any opportunity to a competitor to um, pick mm. you apart. Just get it right. Yeah, absolutely. Do your homework. So what about when numbers are sort of pointing towards a narrative or or telling you something that instinctively from a human perspective, you're like, I don't know about this. So as an example, we know that there have been these sea change movements and people like even in New York, we had a million people move out of the city during the pandemic to go and live out in their houses. And now they're kind of coming back. So the numbers are telling us that people are, you know, moving further out and they're wanting more space and more land. But we know that we are social creatures and we need novelty and excitement and we want to be together. So have you had an instance like that where you're like, oh, I just don't know if this is temporary blip because it doesn't match with what we know about human behavior? Yes, you do need to apply common sense. With regard to people leaving New York and San Francisco and elsewhere, yes, a million people might have left and the vast majority may well be coming back. But the logic is, well, is 100% going to come back or is it going to be 5% or 10% or 20% that say, you know what, this suits me to move to Bozeman, Montana and uh, come into the office once every month or fly across or whatever it is and I'm going to do the rest by Zoom. I think that is the more likely outcome here. People will say, oh, yes, moving out of the city was all very predictable, but they'll all come back because they're all social beings. Yeah, well, I don't think 100% of a million people will come back. I reckon there's enough people at a particular time in the life cycle where they've got all their friends, they've got their family, they don't need to go to a bar. So, you know, they, they would actually prefer to be somewhere else as a consequence. So you can yeah. temper your story, you know, to have a foot in both camps. Uh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's probably right. You know, it's very rare that you have a complete social shift that involves 100% of the people doing something completely different. Right. Although I must say, you know, some of the technology shifts have, uh, you know, like the development of the iPhone, for example. Another one is the use of apps. I don't know whether you've noticed this in America, but certainly in Australia, I call it the great appification of Australia. <laughs> uh, we, I don't know whether you, you know we had the, the COVID safe app, which we had to download oh, yes. at the beginning of the yes. pandemic. Apparently it cost $21 million to uh, <laughs> develop the app. But I, I argue that that COVID safe app, it has a dividend we're now only able to just able to see because I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an entire cohort of middle Australia that did not know what an app was, much less how to download it. The appification of the business and customer relationship has been affected by the pandemic. And I think we have swung, and not 100% of the consumer market, but substantially, we have embraced that very, very quickly. Yeah, it's interesting also with QR codes and 
it like dining out, you know, scanning your menu through the QR code. And it's interesting too, because now there's like a little bit of a backlash against that. Like, no, I want to be served and I want to look at a physical menu. And I kind of chuckle when I read that because I think back to when I was in Japan and like 2018 or whatever, and they were already doing that. It was like a digital menu on your table and, you know, you don't have to speak to anyone. It was fabulous. So a part of it then therefore goes back to what you were saying before around context, right? The context of the market and, you know, maybe that lifestyle shift around moving further out is a part of like an Australian lifestyle change, right? Because we are more relaxed and family is important. The the people who want social interaction, you know, that you may not need the social interaction of whatever the latest hottest bar is in Greenwich Village or whatever, you might get Mm. that social interaction from a country town somewhere, you know, Mullumbimby outside uh, Byron Bay might be the kind of social interaction that you are after. That's interesting about the QR code because in Australia, the number of waiters operating in Australia is today is still 14,000 fewer than we had just prior to the pandemic. So 14,000 waiters have been redeployed. And that is because of the use of QR codes. Now, if you're running Mm. a business like a cafe and you can introduce QR codes and everyone accepts that and orders, you place your order, a single server brings your meal from the kitchen to your table you probably can eliminate four or five waiters. That goes straight to your bottom line. You're you're making that business far more efficient. Now, there's going to be some people that will want to be served and so forth. Well, you know, that's fine. But for many people, they're happy to use the technology in order to, um, you know, to streamline the process. And um, I wasn't aware that, you know, the um, QR code is right through Japan, trust the Japanese, of course, but they've been struggling with uh, declining labour pools for 25 years. So they would be the Mm. first adopters. You know, they they wouldn't have a big waiter population in Japan. You know, they need to be redeployed as aged care workers or something like that. Yeah, there you go. It's like a context of like even technological developments from that market. And that, that automatically makes more sense as well. Also, I think, you know, the American feedback on QR codes is partly coming from the fact that you have to tip, which I'm still grappling with, right, tip, yeah. like for everything. And so people are saying, well, if I'm, I'm tipping for the service and you're not even taking my order, <laughs> you're you're not really doing anything. Like, what, what am I doing? tipping for? <laughs> right. right. We exactly. should be tipping the, so. the, uh, the QR code developer, the exactly. app developer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I'm curious about then, like, you obviously are an expert when it comes to Australian history, and I know that you're a proud Australian. How often do you look at comparisons between how Australia is performing in certain areas versus other markets? How important is that? I think it's incredibly important. Australia, you know, we might be quite remote, but we are actually a very, very sophisticated, cosmopolitan, prosperous nation. And if there is a development uh, overseas, then we will pick up on it pretty quickly. So I most certainly do, you know, have two kids, or we have two kids, one in San Francisco and one in uh, Copenhagen, in fact. So we're regularly shuffling between West Coast US and Europe. And so, you know, we do compare, or I do compare how, how we're living in Australia with these other markets. And it's not just in a statistical sense. You know, I like going to these places and then you absorb 
the culture and you can see mm. where Australia sits or where the different markets are um, are in that broader spectrum. But uh, I think it's very important to be very global in your thinking, especially if you're working in a business that is uh, subjected to these global trends, I suppose. And I guess when you're trying to understand the data from like that global scale, so I was looking at population growth in Australia before this at I'm going to just embarrass myself now, but 1.3% population growth in Australia. And you might say, well, that's flat, but in America, it's 0.4%. So then you kind of, it helps you automatically right there to see that you are getting an, an influx of growth in people inside of Australia. And then it helps you to go, well, where's that coming from? And yeah. is it the birth rates and a lack of migration that's causing America to flatten? Or like, what is the cause of that? It's, it's it makes the story so much more interesting. It does. About 28 to 30% of Australians, of Australian residents, were born overseas. Unless you put that in context, you think, oh, well, that's, that seems like a lot. But when I say that proportion for America, the great immigrant nation, 340 million people with a Statue of Liberty saying, give me your tired, poor, huddled masses or whatever this, whatever it says. You know, it's like the immigrant <laughs> mm. kingpin of the world. The proportion of the American population born outside America is 15%. Australia is at 30%. Okay, there's a lot of illegals. Make it 20%. Australia is still 30%. It's like bizarre in terms of yeah. how open and accommodating we have been, not just recently, 80 years. And, you know, and there's still, you know, lots of room to, you know, we're very tolerant, open, accommodating people in Australia. It makes us very plastic, pliable. We're sort of cherry-picking bits and pieces from other cultures and evolving it. Whereas America, if you're an immigrant coming to America, then you learn how to eat hamburgers. You learn the rules of baseball. I still don't understand how baseball works. You, <laughs> you, you become an American. Whereas if you're an Italian or a Greek or an Indian coming to Australia, we will absorb you, but we will also absorb some of your culture like yes. you know we'll kiss you know we'll kiss people on the cheek we never did that in the 1960s we saw the italians and the greeks doing it in the 1970s and thought, oh, that's very sophisticated <laughs> we, we we're a colonial people we're a very needy colonial people that oh well, look, we will start kissing each other on the cheek and drinking cappuccino uh, <laughs> so we're very whereas the americans are very self-assured about their critical mm -hmm. mass and their culture you follow our culture, whereas we're um, a project still in development in terms of our absorption. And it's also, you know, if 30% come from overseas, you know, the host population is more easily influenced than if it's only 10% of the population born overseas. Yeah, and it's really striking too, since I've moved to the US, I, I really kind of like notice it. I, I notice that the in Australia, you are surrounded by so many more like variety, diversity of cultures and that they are embraced in the cuisines that are on offer. Like America is, it is diverse in its own ways. And, you know, you get exposure to like Colombian food and Latin American cuisine, which is all amazing, which we didn't really get in Australia. But but that being said, I, I do feel, like feel that you walk down the street in Melbourne and you can really see that diversity and that openness to different 
cultures? Yeah, uh, very much in our in our gateway cities. That is that is the case, um, and that would be Melbourne, Sydney, M- Brisbane, to some extent Perth, and then it's sort of you know a little less else elsewhere. But uh, Melbourne and Sydney in particular are very global cities. You stack up the demography of Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, London is also very, very diverse, but outside London, much less so. And the same with New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. You know, maybe San Francisco and Los Angeles because of the Mexican influence coming up the coast. It's predominant, it's dominated by that. Whereas Australia, there's Indians, there's Chinese, there's Malaysians, there's Filipinos or whatever. So there's a there's a greater range of influences. In America, it is predominantly Latino. Now, it can be different varieties of Latino, but it's dominated by that. So I think that that makes Australia truly one of the most dynamic, interesting, cosmopolitan places, capital city Australia, that is. And Australians are known to travel outside of Australia and to really, like, particularly in the Asia-Pac region, because it's so close and so easy and, you know, quite affordable, we like to get out there and, and we're kind of known for that. So therefore... I mean, I don't know, is that more than people from other countries that we do travel more? And Very much so. I mean, we, we live a long way from anywhere. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. seven hours to the nearest world city, which is Singapore, I think. You know, it's like the edge of the known world is Singapore. And we've got to go. Melbourne and Sydney is, we're on the wrong side of the continent to actually get uh, to, uh, to these world uh, cities. Plus, we're a colonial people who measure our sophistication by how much we travel. Speak to the average middle-class Australian in their, say, mid-40s, and uh, they will tell you how many times their kids have been overseas. That's that's a measure of prosperity. <laughs> oh, my kids, you know, they're only 14 and 15, but they've been overseas five times, you know, three times, three times to Bali and one time to Phuket or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, the, uh, that's the measure. Whereas I'm not sure that Americans do that. You know, plus, from an American point of view, why would you go outside America? Very interestingly, in Britain, the big thing is to have a holiday place down at the Costa Brava in Spain. (laughs) And America, to some extent, you know, you can Mm -hmm. go to the Caymans or to Costa Rica or, you know, wherever it is. Australians haven't quite mastered. They're not sort of developing sort of an Australian colony in Bali will visit. But I know there's some people there, but, you know, they haven't got this critical mass of people the way the Brits have dominated the Costa Brava in a permanent sense as opposed to the Australians, you know, tearing around Bali on a motorbike. But they're doing it on holiday. They're not doing it as uh, as residents of those areas. That, that could well be something you'd see later in the 2020s, 2030s. Yeah, well, and it's probably like knowing Australians, it would be a complete lifestyle change versus just like a holiday house or oh, yeah. an interim thing, right? Yeah. It's it's then a part of your identity in yeah, a way. Exactly. The the Brits are very good at doing this, but then you know they have such crappy weather, so I can't. I can't. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're they're desperate to get out of the the climate. I think. <laughs> Well, and to your point before, desperate to stay in, the Americans seem to all have a holiday house somewhere else in America. They don't really, yeah, to your point, tend to venture out, but they do, like, everyone that I've met has a, I've got a country house near the lake. (laughs) Can I come and visit, please? uh, Do they call it a cabin on one side and a cottage on the other side of America? 
yeah, I hear Bozeman, Montana is very popular with the uh, mm. with the smart set as well. You want to do that sort of big sky type thing. Yeah, I'd Phoenix, love to Ari- get in Montana. <laughs> uh, Phoenix, Arizona, of course, and, you know, Miami. Mm. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld's parents retired to Miami. <laughs> That's my cultural <laughs> reference to New York. Right, or I just, I'm currently watching Dexter and he's based in Miami. So oh, yeah, also right. the serial killers are in Miami. <laughs> right. Okay, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> Steer clear. Steer clear. Uh, well, I mean, there is no doubt that Australia is a really special place. And uh, I think that Australia is very lucky to have people like you who are proudly, you know, and, and critically talking about all of the dynamic things that are happening in that country, Bernard. So I have one last question for you and then I will let you go. And it's, you know, you're you're obviously very observational about the world. So you're constantly kind of looking at what's happening. But what what's your kind of go-to when you're trying to look at a topic that's familiar to you in a different way or to really broaden your perspective and look outside? I will often pick up references in popular culture. You know, it's Seinfeld. You know, it's like 30 years old. So it's a bit <laughs> stretching a bit now. <laughs> but um, popular culture or behaviour, if there is a major social, cultural, demographic shift on. It will be evident not just in the figures, but it will be evident in a whole range of other ways that you can see in behaviour. For example, I was in um, Copenhagen, where our son is, in the main street. You know, it's main street there called Strogett. And um, I was uh, sitting in a cafe and I watched this, um, this guy walk past. He was smoking a cigarette oddly, and he threw the cigarette packet out just on the ground. And I thought, oh, it's a bit rude. And this Danish guy came up behind him, tapped him on the shoulder and said something in Danish and pointed and said, you need to pick that up. And the guy did, picked it up and put it in a bin. This wasn't some sort of council office, it's just like a (laughs) member of the public. What that speaks to is behaviour, the sense of community, a sense of pride, a sense of ownership. I found that incredibly telling, just that simple, single example. You can extract an enormous amount just by sitting in a cafe, watching people go past. It's my favourite pastime in Europe. A warm day, you know, plain tree, dappled sunlight, cup of tea, Wi-Fi, and just watching people go by. <laughs> I could yeah, write a pe- book on people. that. You could, yeah. People watching, but also like really thinking about what that means for the con, like the culture and the context that you're saying, what it means about you. Bernard, thank you so much for all of the insights that you've given us on this show. And thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And um, good luck with the rest of your time in New York. Numbers rule the universe, as Pythagoras said, but not without context. I hope you enjoyed that chat. If you did, please follow and rate the show. Until next time, keep looking outside. 